0: good morning. So I just want to say first, last week's annual celebration was so good. It was really fun to see how many people uh, within our body serve one another. So that was really, really cool. I enjoyed that. This week we are jumping back into the book of Genesis and we have now arrived at the sixth day. Um, So that's, uh, I guess this is the start of the second month of our, what did we say, 57-year sermon, so we're getting there. Uh, So the reading this morning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." and every tree which has fruit yielding sea, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Would you all join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your holy scriptures, for the revelation of yourself and of our beginnings. In a world full of competing ideologies and conflicting so-called truths, we can know for certain that real truth, your truth, is never contradictory. All of this worldly conflict, Lord, comes down to a prideful competition of what man says is true and what you say is true. We pray, Lord, for your discernment in these matters. And we pray that in this world of competing voices, your simple truth, as you've revealed to us in the scriptures, would speak the loudest. You tell us that you created men as male and female, and you created us in your image and in your likeness. You tell us to be fruitful and multiply something we could not do had you not created us male and female. You tell us that a day passes after just one morning and one evening— and that your perfect and amazing creation took you just six days to create. Your scripture also tells us that after those six days, you saw all that you had made, and that together it wasn't just good, but that it was very good. How amazing, Lord. I pray over this congregation, this family of believers, that these simple truths and so many others revealed to us throughout the book of Genesis would clear up any confusion in our minds. I pray, dear God, that you would give us discernment and guide us as we navigate this world full of competing voices, and that we would overcome the noise and chaos of man's word and instead rest in the peace of your word. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for your perfect creation. We thank you for the clear language of your scriptures. We thank you for creating us in your image, and we thank you for the gift of life given us through creation and the gift of rebirth and new life given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, how we love you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you, Joe.
1: As uh, Joe uh, mentioned, and for those of you who are here last week, uh, we had our annual celebration. And of course, the, the intent well, the, just give you a little history as to what the annual celebration used to be. It used to be an annual business meeting. It, we kind of morphed it into an annual celebration and invited you all to it, uh, whether you liked it or not. And so, um, this last year, uh, we, um, I really felt led by the Lord uh, as a part of our annual celebration. Again, the whole point is to look back in celebration at God's faithfulness and to look ahead with anticipation. At, God, at God's continued faithfulness. And uh, one of the things that we wanted to do looking back was just to give kind of a, a, an, a, an overview, a snapshot of who's who. Because the fact is, there's a lot of people doing a lot of things through, uh, in a variety of activities, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week. And so we just wanted to give a, at least a taste of what is to come. Now, the, the difficulty when you, start to, when you try to highlight everybody is, guess what? you don't highlight everybody. The difficulty of highlighting everybody is that someone always kind of slips through the cracks, and I am and fully aware of that. So, I, I just want to say right up front, I apologize uh, if you felt left out because that was not the intent whatsoever. Uh, again, we were trying to do that in a very concise, efficient manner. Praise the Lord that we actually stopped on time. Um, but the fact is, uh, that was, the intention was not to overlook you or dismiss you because I know there are a lot of you that serve so faithfully day in and day out and do things many times unnoticed by almost everybody. But let me just say this, even though it may be unnoticed by the average person or it may not be a formal ministry, it is not unnoticed by God. And even being up here when I was introducing to various people, I was looking at like Randy and Beth Carey, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like they have they started the Legacy Coalition, uh, seeking to empower and equip and and to uh, compel uh, the older generation to be intentional with the younger generation. And so, just there's so many of you that are doing so many things. So I just want to say once again, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for serving Christ and His Church so faithfully, and I pray that you continue to do so. By the way, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but sometimes we think service starts when we become an adult or something, or service starts when we uh, reach a certain level of maturity, either spiritually or physically. Service starts when the Spirit of God gives you opportunity to serve His church. Did you notice who the drummer here was? Do you know how old Griff is? Eight years old. Back there, serving on the drums. That's right. So, guess what? If there's a willing heart, there is room for you to serve in church. It just takes a willing heart. So, please, if that's something you're like, man, I'm just feeling compelled to do something... We wanna talk, we wanna celebrate, we wanna come alongside you, we wanna give you every ample opportunity to serve in the way that God has either gifted you or soon to be will discover your giftings by the way by way of working. Uh, as Joe read for us, we are continuing back in our Genesis series, hopefully not 57 years in the making, but uh, we're going to keep plowing through this. We're almost, we're actually at the end of chapter one. There's only 50 chapters, so we got lots of time here. But um, I do want to highlight something here because even in the, the, we've been going through this for about a month now, and um, I've gotten wind that some of you are a little unsettled by my preaching through Genesis. Genesis. And you're unsettled in this sense because I'm not scratching where you're itching in every place. Uh, and I understand that. I understand that as we plow through, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we must understand there's 2,500 years of human history that takes place in 11 chapters of Scripture. So guess what? There is a lot that is not said. But there is a lot that is said. And so my intent for us this morning, I want to just highlight and help us realize that even though we are covering a a large amount of human history and a a very short amount of uh, scriptural text, there is many things that we can speculate about. There are many questions that arise by what is said. But let me just say this. Let us focus on what God does reveal. Yes, it's okay to ask lots of questions. I encourage lots of questions. I mean, however, people are people are always trying to grapple and understand and and you should do that. With every every truth claim or a clear statement in scripture, it does it does conjure up questions in our minds about how other things working. We're under, we're trying to understand God's world that he created. We're trying to understand uh, more fully and more deeply God's redemptive purposes here on earth. But let me just kind of reemphasize something. Maybe, I don't know if it'll settle your hearts, but it'll at least clarify why or my, my strategy in preaching this book called Genesis. First of all, as I said before, there's much that God does not say, but we must pay careful attention to what God does say. So that's, that's point number one. The second thing is we need to be aware of, some, uh, of the speculative ideas and arguments that are not always helpful for grasping a clear understanding of what God does reveal. After, the, after all, the, the Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies. You know... That they only breed quarrels. And how often do we debate and argue and get debacled and get wrapped around the axle about things that honestly are kind of speculative or at least, at the very least, very tertiary in uh, in, in matters of uh, eternal importance? Now, what I'm not encouraging us to do is I'm not encouraging us to stop asking questions. I think questions are good. I encourage you to ask a lot of questions, but, but remember what I stated at the very beginning of our series. I'm seeking to identify what Moses, the author of Genesis, is intending to communicate to the people, the ancient people of Israel, before they entered the promised land, and from there... At that point, to make appropriate application for our lives. Now, this means that we can't address every question or speculation that has ever been raised for the past few thousand years because God's intent was not to address every question a person might have. It was to answer the most important questions that we should be asking. We might have lots of questions. The question is, are we asking the right questions? Are we asking the questions that matter for eternal importance? Well, I believe that God has answered those questions that matter most in our life. And one of those most important questions that we should be asking or that has has oftentimes been posed is this, what is the meaning of life, right? Right? We exist, we live, we breathe, we, we, uh, we function in our lives, but then sometimes we have these moments or these, maybe we call them midlife crisis, I don't know, but we take a step back going, what is this really all about in the first place? Why was I created? What is my purpose in creation? What is my place in the universe? Well, God tells us at the very beginning what our purpose is in existing in existence is all about. And our purpose is actually a threefold purpose here. Uh, we see in our text, verse 26 through 31, we see a threefold purpose given to us in our created design. First of all, it is to reflect the image of God. To reflect God's image. This has to do with our identity. Secondly, it is to rule over creation. We see ultimately that that's a, a, what we call the dominion mandate. God has created us to reflect his image and to rule over his creation. And then thirdly, we are called to reproduce godly offspring. Uh, once again, another function of our created design. But so that's going to be kind of our outline for this morning's service. Let's unpack each of these purposes one at a time. Purpose number one in why you and I and all people were created, it is to reflect God's image. Seth, I appreciate what you actually shared earlier at the beginning of the service because you you, you, uh, you focused on a point that is oh so critical and necessary for our lives. Because many people, whether you recognize it or not, acknowledge it or not, all around the world, especially in a Western context, we're always wondering what our purpose is. And ultimately, we want to know our purpose because what we're really asking is, how do I enjoy and get the most out of life? How do I experience happiness? How do I really live a full life and feel like life is good? I can conclude that for myself. We're always asking that, or at least pursuing things that might promise that and help us experience that full life that we desire to live. The problem is, we oftentimes don't understand our actual purpose in existence. You see, if our purpose in existence is to reflect our glory, then we will pursue things in life that ultimately achieve that ultimate objective. But what we see in Scripture from the very beginning, when we ask you know, questions like, what is the meaning of life? It is not to reflect you. It is to reflect God. Your purpose in life is to reflect God as image bearers of God. So in other words, life is not about you. It is about God. And you as image bearers are created with one purpose, and that well, multiple purposes, but one purpose is to, to reflect God's image. Look at the passage here, once again, Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness." So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. he created them. Now there's a couple of observations that I think are, perhaps they've come to your mind. Maybe you didn't even notice it at all, so it doesn't matter, but I'm going to share it with you anyways. First of all, if you look at this, God said this, let us make man in our image. I don't know how many of you talk like this, but when you talk to someone, you, don't, you say the first personal pronoun, right? I. You don't say, let us, me, myself, and I do this for you, right? At least I hope you don't. That's another conversation for another time. You can set up an appointment with Pastor Tom Lotz. He would love to clarify this identity crisis that you're experiencing. We don't talk like that, but God does. And God says, let us make man in our own image. Now, that let us phrase, if we were to put that in quotes, emphasizes that God is really consulting himself within the persons of the Godhead about the creation of mankind. Now, I think it's important to understand at this point in Genesis that Moses is not seeking to uh, establish a Trinitarian doctrine. That, that's not the point that he's uh, communicating. He's just relaying what the Spirit of God is conveying to him to give to the ancient people of Israel before they enter the promised land. And so, although on the pages of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, we see Trinitarian doctrine uh, surface, at the same time, that may not be uh, Moses' uh, primary intent or purpose in the describing God, saying it like this, let us make man in our own, own image. However, when we read phrases like that and, and where we are at currently in God's redemptive history, we can look back and go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. The ancient people of Israel would be like, they would probably be thinking, uh, have a different paradigm when they hear those words. But where we are at in God's redemptive history, we understand that God is actually referring to himself in a plurality, even Elohim is in the plural form, and it's really setting the table for Trinitarian doctrine. Now, you might be wondering, because I'm not going to assume that we are all on the same page, you might be wondering yourself, what is this Trinitarian doctrine you're talking about? What does that even mean? Where is that on the pages of Scripture? Well, let me just say this. It isn't on the pages of Scripture in the sense of the exact term. You won't see trinity or triunity in Scripture. However, it is a label. It is a term given to describe what is observed in Scripture. What we observe in Scripture is that there is one God, As Christians, we are called monotheists. Mono meaning one, theist meaning God. We are monotheistic. Uh, We have a faith, a monotheistic faith. We believe in one God. However, God is incomprehensible. He's not just like you and me. God is one God, but he is coexisting in three eternal co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you might be also wondering to yourself, how in the world is that even possible? That doesn't make logical sense. And you would be right in concluding that because guess what? Even though we learn through the attributes of God series that God is very knowable, he is also incomprehensible. So even though we can understand God to some degree or to some depth, he is incomprehensible to wrap your mind or try to uh, grasp this idea that there's one God but three persons, and they're, and they're not one-third Father, one-third Son, one-third Spirit, or anything like that. They're 100% fully th- persons. You're going to be like, that's mind-blowing, and that means you're right where you need to be. Blown away going, I don't know how to understand it. And that's okay, because as I've said before, there are many things in Christendom that are not necessarily meant to be understood in its fullest sense, but accepted because it is on the pages of Scripture. Now another point I want to kind of clarify in our in this one in this verse that uh, verse twenty six and twenty seven is this we talk about the word for man right let us make man in our own image and I know especially in our twenty first century Western context those kind of thing those kind of that kind of language makes us cringe a little bit because we're like ugh it's always about man this patriarchal system that we're kind of that the, the scriptures are written within let me just. Clarify that for a point for a moment here. The word "man" in Hebrew literally means Adam. Where does Adam come in on patience? Oh yeah, Adam. He's the first person, the first male that God created, and then Eve was created from Adam. Adam in uh, literally means. man or mankind so when god is referring to let us make man in our image what he's saying is let us make mankind let us make the human race in our image he's talking about all human beings adam literally means to be taken out of the ground and we'll discuss that in more detail when we get to genesis chapter 2 where we talked about the similarities as well as the uniquenesses of both men and women well, back to our purpose, right? Back to purpose number one. Why in the world were you created by God? What does it mean that humans are created to reflect God's image or to reflect his likeness? Well, let me just kind of bring another a couple points of clarity before we jump in and give definition to this. First of all, image. Or likeness should be interpreted in synonymous terms. Even though they are two separate Hebrew words and they have two separate meanings, they should be really read and interpreted in a synonymous way. They, kind of, they both together carry a, a particular emphasis that we're supposed to understand. Secondly, these terms should not be interpreted literally. Literally. Now, this is, we in Christendom like to kind of throw around this word, this literal word, right? We go like, we interpret the Bible literally or figuratively. In this case, we don't interpret these terms literally in the sense that we have a body like God has a body. Why? Because God does not have a body. You see, Scripture tells us that God is spirit. And so when we read Scripture, sometimes we can kind of un- uh, Uh, without realizing it, we we, we need to help, it's helpful to understand, sometimes we can think of God as just a a larger, giant version of us, right? God in the sky, he's got all the same features that we have, just a bigger head, bigger arms, bigger legs, everything's bigger, and he's somewhere invisible, so I can't actually see him, even though he's bigger than everybody else. Um, But that's not who God is, because God is actually spirit. And so scripture continually refers to God in these Here's a really fancy, huge word for you, Anthropo- anthropomorphic terms, which basically in the, in the, in the layman's terms, he, God is referred to in human-like language so that we might better relate to him. For example, we see like in the Psalms, God holds you in the palm of his hands. Well, God doesn't actually have hands, and he's not literally holding you in the palm of his hand as if I'm sitting there going... Yippee-skippy, and I'm all good to go. That's not what it means, but it's figurative language because it helps us relate to God in a very intimate and personable way. So we need to understand image and likeness are are referred to synonymously, but they are also not referred to literally. So specifically then... Reflecting God's image or reflecting His likeness means that we resemble or look like God. You and I reflect what God is like. About a month ago or so, my, my family was visiting, my folks were visiting, and uh, one of the comments that was made by a number of you is that when you met my dad, and I was standing next to him, and you're like, you can tell the like father, like son resemblance. I'm the younger, more dashingly good looking version of my father. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but my dad and I, we looked at him, like, wow, I can definitely tell the, the resemblance here. And not, not just in the way we look, but also in our mannerisms. Um, for example, Pastor Corey took out his phone. By the way, if you see Pastor Corey take out his phone, duck. Because he's probably snapping pictures of you. I was unaware. There's me on the left. There's my dad on the far right, kind of in the glare. We have the same mannerisms. We're totally oblivious to what is doing. We're we're not bored. We're just sitting in worship. We're both singing. Our arms are crossed like this. And I guess Corey looked over and just said, oh, my goodness. (laughs) Like father, like son. The point, you can take that picture down, Megan. Thanks. (laughs) Quickly. The point is this. My, i reflect my father I came from my father, and I reflect my father. Not perfectly, not exactly, not 100%, but there are a lot, there's a lot of crossover. Again, the apple does not fall very far in a positive sense. Uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it's like w- what my dad is like. I portray many of those attributes. In the same way, you and I as human beings portray many attributes and characteristics about God. You and I are like God. We are, not, we are not God, but we are like God. We are like our Creator. We, and, and some of the unique ways that we are like our Creator, for example, is you and I have a conscience. No other created being, uh, uh, at least in the six days of creation, have a conscience except for the human race. You and I have been endowed with or bestowed with uh, emotion and uh, with a mind and a will. We've been given the ability to rationalize and to have a moral conscience, to have an intelligent conversation, to exercise reason, to uh, be creative and to make choices. The animal kingdom functions instinctively. The human race functions consciously. We make moral choices. Bless you. We make moral choices, and that was one of the many ways that God has created us uniquely out of all other created things. It also denotes our capacity to relate to God as well as one another on a conscious and moral and rational level. So when we think about when God says, let us make man, at least that is man and woman, let us make man and woman in our image, We really reflect what God is like, not perfectly, not wholly or completely, but we reflect in a lot of ways what he is like. And I think an important emphasis that we need to to accept and understand very clearly in our minds is this, is that our image-bearing identity is one of the primary ways that human beings are distinguished from all other created things especially the animal kingdom especially angels you see while some theories uh, of an evolution uh, while some theories promote the idea that humans are merely the latest version of an evolutionary evolutionary change in animals or that we came from some sort of primate the bible teaches that humans are radically different altogether These differences can be seen by how God has given humans the mandate to rule over all creation, including the animals. But these differences are also observed in our God-given identity to bear his image. No other created thing or other living thing possesses this quality or characteristic. Even as Seth even highlighted at the very beginning, Sixth day of creation was the climax of God's creative power. The seventh day is equally necessary. That'll happen next week. We'll talk about that more next week. But the sixth day, everything culminated. God created a sacred place for a, for the climax of his creation called the human race. That doesn't make it all about us. Remember, we reflect God's image not our image. It makes it all about God so that we might live in praise and live for the glory of God, not ourselves. I think another important detail in these verses is that both male and female together represent God's image or represent God's likeness. This elevates the intrinsic and, and equal value that both sexes have in the sight of God. In a, in a very relevant or a, a current example of this, I know around the world, and especially in the United States, uh, uh, the, the, that, that striving for equality among the sexes, sexes has been kind of an ongoing struggle, Right? Uh, the feminist movement was one of those movements that at least on the surface sought to promote equal rights and equal treatment for both men and women. And on one hand, no one would argue that, you know, it's like both men and women, they can vote. You know, there's, there's no lesser than, there's no like primary and secondary class of human beings here or sexes here, all people both man and woman are created in the sight of God and are equally valuable, are equally uh, representative of who God is. Now, I believe, we may disagree with this in here, this is not intended to be a knockout, dragout comment here, but I believe that this movement has digressed into something that is way outside the scope of Scripture, and especially in regards to the roles of both men and women. We'll talk about that more when we unpack Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. The irony of ironies, however, is that in their effort to fight against patriarchal systems, feminists have now lost their voice to another prominent movement, and that would be called the transgender movement or LGBTQAI, whatever letters you want to add to that. In other words, all of a sudden, what used to be a prominent voice for equal rights and equal treatment has now been displaced by another louder voice, and that is the transgender voice. Apparently, there are over 72 gender options, I learned this past week, that you can choose from this week. Uh, And please understand me. I'm going to move into... uh, a, clear, a point of clarification that is oh so necessary. But this isn't intended to come across as an Aaron the angry preacher pressing back against the culture. That's not my intent. This is Aaron, the man who is seeking to represent God and his design of creation and imploring you to accept God's design, not the culture's. Let me summarize a few points that have been made already. First of all, God made male and female in the beginning. Very simple. God made male and female in the beginning. Secondly, male and female together make up the image of God. Male and female together make up the image of God. This means that no other gender uh, is optional. No other gender can uh, represent or bear God's image. So regardless of what other genders are manufactured or thought of in our culture, they don't represent the image of God. So even though someone may be convinced in their own mind, I'm whatever other kind of gender that psychology has put forward, it cannot represent the image of God because God said from the very beginning, male and female that's it. The only two sexes represent the image of God. Thirdly, God evaluated everything that he created in the beginning and concluded that everything was really, really, really good. Remember what we talked about before when God called, you know, each of the days he would say, and God called it good. And God said it, he evaluated his creation, almost took pack and was like, wow, that's really impressive. And he said, it's really good. That word for good in our common day vernacular, we go, we call everything good. Good means kind of nothing. Good can mean anything you want it to. Be. It's kind of a subjective term, but good according to God in the Hebrew means perfection. It means, it means completeness. In other words, when God says everything is really good, He's saying it needs no refinement. It doesn't need any kind of evolutionary progress. It doesn't need any more uh, development. Everything is as it's intended to be from the very beginning. And any change that happens from that is really a digression of what was once perfect. So that's how we need to understand when God says everything was really good, it's done, it's complete, that's it. Don't mess it up. Chapter three happens in Genesis and we see everything gets messed up. We'll get to that later. Why then, if it's so simple on the pages of scripture, why then all the confusion about gender? Remember the pattern observed in human history that I've communicated a a couple different times. The pattern is this, left to ourselves, humans continually rebel and bring disorder into this world. Left to ourselves, human beings continually rebel and bring disorder into the world. You see, sin, which is brought about by man's rebellion, has corrupted, it has confused, it has distorted God's perfect design and function of creation. You see, God is not the one on trial here. We're the ones that have kind of thrown the stick in the spokes. God, is, God made everything perfect from the beginning, and yet because of our rebellious choice to live autonomously, from God and to make and to take matters into our own hands. Again, we'll get to that when we get to the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil. We see ultimately we have corrupted and confused and distorted God's perfect design. Not to mention, as Genesis 3 will expose, there's another enemy at, uh, at play here, and his name is Satan. He's Lucifer. He goes by other names Lucifer. He has other labels or reputations. He's referred to as the father of lies. And the father of lies continually confuses the minds of people in believing and acting in ways that are contrary to God's original design of creation. Think about it like this. From the beginning, God created humans, male and female, who are the only created beings in all creation to bear his image or to to bear his likeness. In other words, to be human is to reflect God. You know, we sometimes get that the definitions reversed. I'm only human, right? That's to kind of exonerate ourselves from screwing up in some way. But actually, to be human is to reflect God. To be human is to be a, a, a perfect creation in God's uh, redemptive design. To be human is a good thing. To be human is to reflect who God is. The problem is, is there are many things in our lives that dehumanize us. Sin dehumanizes us. God rehumanizes us. Sin dehumanizes, God rehumanizes, and we know that our enemy, who is a formidable enemy, his attempt is to destroy and oppose what God's love and therefore to dehumanize God's image bearers. He does not want us to reflect God's goodness. He does not want us to reflect God's amazing love for all his creation. He wants us to be cloudy, unreflective image bearers. But God is in the process of continually rehumanizing us. It's called redemption made possible by Jesus Christ. How does Satan seek to dehumanize us? In general, he tempts us to ignore God and to pay attention to him, he deceives us by deluding the truth with lies and doubt. And one of the predominant ways, especially currently, that Satan is dehumanizing God's image-bearers is by confusing our understanding of what it means to be human, male or female. That's it. No other alternative. We must also understand, brothers and sisters, that gender, or more appropriately, our biological sex, is not fluid. Fluid. Meaning you cannot be born one sex, either male or female, and then think that you were supposed to be another sex. Why? Because your sex isn't determined by how you feel or what you think. It is determined by God before you were even conceived. It is important that we accept Scripture's understanding or exhortation, not the culture's. Our feelings are fickle. Our thinking is very vulnerable. What I think and feel any given day or after any given meal, who knows what I'm thinking and feeling at at any given time. But to think that my sex, or what since the 60s, this word gender got introduced, my gender is determined by how I feel, is a lie from the pit of hell. It is not truth. It is not of God, and it is not consistent with God's original design and creation. And to think that somehow God made a mistake when he predetermined your biological sex is to say that, God, you messed up. You might say it's really good, but it's not really good. You might have said that your creation was perfect, but it's not perfect based on my perspective. Listen to what, look at what, David says in Psalm 139, you made all my delicate inner parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. What David is teaching us is that your gender is predetermined by God and therefore your gender is not an accident. And to think that it is is to say that God messed up when he thought of you and when he formed you. And as I said before, we we need to be warned. Not every thought is of God. Not every thought we think is from God. And not every thought or feeling we have is aligned with God. We must be, as Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are fickle, vulnerable creatures. We need a standard that does not change. We need the Spirit of God to keep reminding us, this is who you are. Because everything in this world and every and all the demonic oppression that is seeking to take you out is telling you a lie to say no you're actually something different god cannot be trusted god made a mistake when he made you and brothers and sisters let me may i say this based on the authority of scripture god did not make a mistake when he created you you are you are here by divine design you were created on purpose, and you were created for a purpose. May you fulfill your purpose. I want to kind of bring us to kind of a twofold exhortation from what I have just said at this point. First of all, I want to say this. We need to speak into the lives of other people, especially our younger people. You know, it, it, it might get joked around, but it's actually not a joke. But the agenda is seeking to take out the next generation. That has always been the case, to target the younger, more vulnerable, impressionable generation. And so it is imperative that you and I speak into and clarify the confusion and displace the lies with truth. But that also means that you need to know the truth. That also means that you need to become biblically literate and stop thinking you'll get to your Bible one day. It means that you need to start having answers to these relevant conversations that are at bay. And if you're wondering yourself, I don't know. I mean, it's so confusing. And trust me, I do understand the language changes every single day, it seems like. And the narrative continually morphs and changes all the time. There's more pronouns invented than you'd ever think of. It's a whole other language. But the point is this, we must speak into the lives of our younger people and in our lives as peers. We need to help one another think clearly and understand God's perfect design as intended from the very beginning. If I could just offer one very helpful resource. I just read this book, um, and it's, a, a, it's an author that I have referred to before, but Rosaria Butterfield, do you have that picture, Megan? Is it up there? There it is, perfect. That is a book I would highly recommend. It's a kind of a newer book that's come out uh, Five Lives of Our Anti Christian Age. Rosaria Butterfield, she used to be a lesbian, uh, dyke theorist, uh, professor who was on the leading edge of advancing this agenda. And God radically changed her. And so you, you could read a couple of her first books, and uh, she shares her story how God radically changed her, and now she is a, a, an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And so if you're wondering, man, how do I understand what's really going on? How do I even understand some of the terms that are thrown out there? Uh, actually, I know Corey just got a chance to, to see her speak, actually, not too long ago. Um, But this is a book I highly recommend to equip you uh, in your own learning as well as in your own ability and opportunity to teach and instill God's truth to the younger people. You know, Rosaria kind of said this in the book. You can take it off right now. Megan, thanks. But Rosario kind of said this, you know, too often in our culture today, especially in the Christian culture today, uh, our, our, our intention, which may be good, our intentions may be right, right? We, we, we have good or sincere efforts to want to love one another, and in our intention or a sincere effort to love one another, we actually might actually fall victim to not loving one another biblically, in other words, what she says is you cannot love one another safely until you love one another biblically. And how often it is in the name of love, which is kind of a nebulous term in our culture because love is, could be subjective to whatever we want it to be, in the name of love or in the pursuit of love, it's just like we just have to kind of be okay with whatever people want but that is not true. We cannot love one another safely until we love one another biblically. Or in the words of Vodi Bakum, he says this in a re- recent sermon, he says, it's very possible to love someone sinfully. How do we love someone sinfully? When we adopt the moral and ethical values of our culture that are contrary to God. When we endorse cultural ideas like love is love. Which is a more of a subjective than an objective and divine definition. When we, in our attempt to maintain relationship, when we, in our attempt to maintain a relationship, dismiss the truth. The point is, I want to what I want to just encourage or exhort you in: we must be informed ourselves, and we must be willing and able, and even looking for opportunities to educate, to teach and let me just say this, speak the truth in love. Not, the truth can, I love how Pastor Mike always put it, the truth can stand naked in the streets and not be ashamed. So you don't have to have an angry voice to make the truth more palatable or believable. The truth can, can stand naked in the streets and not be ashamed. And so what we must do, we must be faithful messengers of God's design. Because here's the second point I want to I highlight, brothers and sisters, it's this. We must understand that the whole gay-transgender confusion is one of many manifestations of sin. The whole gay-transgender conversation is just another out of many manifestations of sin. In other words, just because the just because the, the, the media uh, creates so much attention about it doesn't make it like the sin of all sins. You no, know, sin takes many forms. Sin expresses itself in many ways. And all sin separates us from God. So before you and I make this kind of the, the really, really, the, the impardonable sin, unpardonable sin, before we kind of go down that pathway, may you and I humbly acknowledge the potential sin that exists in our own lives. I think Jerry Bridges wrote a very uh, appropriate book called Respectable Sins. If you have not read it, it's worth reading. How we kind of gloss over and and justify and minimize the sin in our life, but we are very much going to call out the sin in one another's life. How can we call out the sin in one another's life? How can we identify the speck in someone else's eye until we've removed the log in our own eye? So it's imperative that before we jump on the the soapbox and condemn people that are lost and confused, the way in which that is going to be expressed in love and the way that we can come across humbly and compassionately is by first identifying, Lord, if there be any unright way in me, rid me of those things. Because guess what? We all are a work in progress. None of us have arrived. But the promise of Scripture is that he will bring us to completion one day. Jesus doesn't give up on us. May we not give up on one another. As image bearers of God, what is our purpose and what is our function? First of all, it is to reflect God. Not reflect ourselves, it is to reflect God. We are image bearers of God, both male and female, reflect who God is. But we also have a a clear function that also denotes our, our purpose. Purpose number two, we see this. That mankind was created to rule over God's creation. Mankind was created to rule over God's creation. Look at what the, what uh, Genesis 26 and 28 say. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A similar passage that we could turn to is in Psalm chapter 8. Where we see, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with a glory and honor. It's speaking to human beings. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also beasts and field, the birds in the heavens, the fish and the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. What is our second function? What is our section, second purpose in, being in existence in the first place? To, to bear... And to reflect the image of God. Secondly, it is to have dominion or to exercise rule over God's creation. Do you realize that God created you as co-heirs of all creation? It wasn't, this is, on one hand, yes, it is God's world, but he's created you and given you a divine task to exercise dominion and rule over all his creation, every living thing, everything. Now, we need to kind of qualify that, right? Having exercising rule or subduing and dominion doesn't mean to rape and pillage the earth for self-serving gain. It doesn't mean that we just go, whatever, it doesn't matter. No, we are stewards of God's creation, co-heirs, yes, but stewards of his creation. So we don't minimize the importance of that. It also doesn't mean that we worship nature and regard our carbon footprint as the cancer of the earth, which many environmentalists may want to do. So that's another extreme and unbiblical perspective. No, to rule and to subdue and exercise dominion means to function as a co-heir, a co-ruler of God's earth. It means that humanity is commissioned by God to care for his creation. It means that God created us to work and to cultivate his creation. It means that God placed us in charge of his creation as a steward of his creation. After all, Psalm 115, the heavens are the Lord's, Heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. So let me just say this real quickly, in the most practical ways, make up in your mind, as image bearers of God, to steward God's creation as if it belonged to you. In other words, don't treat the earth and all that is in it like a rental car. I know how you drive rental cars. It's not mine, so psh, not my problem. No, no. We are called to care for God's creation. He is, he is, it, is, he, it belongs to God. And as co-heirs, we are given that stewardship responsibility. I love what Warren Wiersbe, he said it this way. We cannot honor the God of creation if we dishonor his creation. We cannot honor the God of creation if we dishonor his creation. So, subdue, rule, have dominion, but do so for the glory of God. Third, and quickly, be fruitful and multiply. Another function of our created design is to be fruitful and multiply. I can safely and confidently say that Abby and I have fulfilled (laughs) this mandate. So, what are you waiting for? Just kidding. (laughs) There's a lot of debate, uh, uh, especially about global overpopulation, right? Something that the world cannot sustain too many people and some people that there's not enough food to feed all the people, even for all the people that currently exist. Let me just push back ever so gently on those potential concerns. The problem with perceived overpopulation is not that the world has too many people in it, but that the people are too greedy and self-serving. That's the problem. It's not that there's too many people. We got too much greed and too much self-serving motives. I think a coworker of mine, when I was working on the pipeline in Alaska, um, he once said, he's like, I'm never having kids because there's just too many people already. So the, the, what the world needs And what Mother Nature needs is that it needs half the population. Again, a non biblical perspective on reality. You see, the problem with the world is is not, the, the problem with the world hunger is not a lack of food, but it is a lack of generosity. You know how much food is thrown away in the U.S. alone every single year? 80 million tons. That's 38% of the annual food supply that's just thrown away. We don't have a lack of food. We have a lack of generous distribution. So overpopulation is a non-issue in God's economy. And a lack of food is a non-issue. It really comes down to the, the depraved heart of people. Again, left to ourselves, everything becomes more disordered and chaotic. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just say this, because this is important to understand. Scripture says that children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Or Malachi 2.15 tells us that God desires godly offspring to fill his earth. And so regardless of what the culture or what the, 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 the social media narrative might be or what people may propose as the issues, again, we're all, we're all world problem solvers, right? We get into our little circles and we solve the world's problems and we walk away going, if, if, if only everybody would just listen to me. If, and the, whole world, the world would be a better place. No. If we would just listen to God. If we would just see the plain reading of Scripture If we would just see like God has created everything, it was good. Sin has really messed it up. And God is in the process patiently but proactively redeeming his creation for the glory of his name. May we be about that business. Reflecting his image. Ruling as a co-heir his earth and being fruitful and multiply. I think it's important, church family, that I just bring it back to a Christ-centered focused. As always, we desire to bring it back. How is this message fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ? It's like this. You see, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is the visible image of the invisible God. So when we talk about you and I, we are image bearers of God, reflecting God. Jesus is the perfect example of one who reflects who God is. Hebrews 1.3 says this, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. To know Jesus, Scripture says, is to know God. Jesus Christ shows us what God meant when he said, let us make man in our image. We see that through Jesus, that the church became his bride. We see that he fills the earth with spiritual children. He blesses his disciples and fills them with the spirit of life. He brings everything under his dominion, including Satan and evil. He enters into the rest of God. The first Adam failed. The second Adam, that is Jesus Christ, succeeded and is victorious. And it is him that we ultimately celebrate. As we are celebrating the victorious second Adam. It did come with sacrifice. It came at a terrible cost, but it is a glorious and victorious conclusion. But we never forget. As Jesus mandates for us, we never forget. Well, Jesus, even now, we, as we understand a little more fully what our purpose is, And design is all about. Ultimately, we look to you and we understand that you fulfilled that perfectly. You came to this earth, you walked this earth, and you lived a perfect life, and you died obediently to your Father's wishes and to your own will so that we might be made right, so that your creation might be restored and redeemed and renewed. All things made new. Jesus, we celebrate you even now. In your precious and holy name, amen.